Welcome to Career Revisionist with Dr. Grace Lee, dedicated to doers, dreamers, and realists who want more success and satisfaction in their life. This podcast is about answering one question. How can you build a fulfilling career where it's all about doing work you love and growing your income without sacrificing your values? And here's your host, who admires people who are intelligently articulate, Dr. Grace Lee. Join me in welcoming Louis Sonstegard to the show today. Aunt Lois has been working with business leaders for more than 30 years. I mean, she has the passion to help successful leaders to do more and become better. She's experienced managing global teams, building high-performing teams, and launching products globally. And I know from talking to Lois, from meeting her as well, that she is all about creating workplaces that engage people. And she's been also inclusive and, and also how they can be inclusive and achieve results. And she developed herself a proprietary methodology that works to create individual and team accountability, even during times of change and transition. So the interesting thing about Lois is that she grew up in Japan and she's extensive experience building multinational business partnerships. So she understands the challenge that's posed by culture, differences in culture and language differences. And because of that, her, her wealth of experiences, she's developed methodologies for navigating through these challenges. She also has an extensive background in hospital and healthcare and management. And so when I talk to her, I mean, her and I both have our PhDs. We have a background in health as well healthcare related fields. And so I thought, well, I'd love to have her on our show. And so for today's episode, we're going to be talking about dedicated, how to, how to develop leaders. We're going to talk about how to lead people to become successful leaders, how to become better and change lives for the better as well. We're also going to be talking about creating effective and connected ecosystems around that and also in building your legacy. So join me in welcoming Lois Sonstacard to the show. Hi, Lois. So I'm super thrilled to have you as an honored guest in my podcast and in my show today. Thank you for joining me at Career Revisionist, and my audience is super excited to hear from you. Now, Lois, you've been working in working with business leaders for more than 30 years. I mean, tell us how you got started in that. I mean, when did you first come across leadership? What was captivating to you about leadership and how did it, how did your career kind of accelerate from there? Sure. I had the, the great fortune of kind of being put into leadership positions very early in my career. So at a very young age, um, it's still in my mid twenties, I was already running major departments of hospitals and managing clinics. And I was teaching in medical schools and um, developing regional programs uh, for a country, partly because I had a background um, that was very unique at that time. I was specialized in maternal fetal biochemistry and some of the things that go on in terms of maternal fetal um, health care. <laughs> So I was very involved in that and uh, was building programs, set up credentialing programs for um, healthcare providers and um, worked with county and government officials in states and in regions and um, to really look at how do you impact outcomes. Mm -hmm. And during that period of time, we had our first child who was born prematurely and then with a number of uh, problems. And so uh, we spent a great deal of time dealing with his healthcare issues. 
continued to work. I was continuing to teach. I was finishing a doctorate at that time, finishing my third book, and um, was very involved nationally. And as he grew and went into school, we realized uh, that we had major problems. And so went and had him tested privately. And we were told that he would probably never read, never write, never be able to learn mathematics. And so we were told to find other things for him to to do. And at that point, I was the head of my department at the university. I was teaching. I was working. I was the head of a department um, in healthcare. And um, so, you know, looked at that. And I had the great opportunity to go to department head meetings. Now, you have to understand, when you're at a university, have you people who are there have to do research, right? Yes. That's but right. nobody cares about your research. I cared because everybody's research, I figured, had an impact on me and my child. So I go to a department head meeting and I'd say, mechanical engineering, I'm trying to solve this problem with my child's brain. How does this research that you've just published, how can I translate that to the various um, pathways in the brain? Or I go to electrical engineering, or I go to, and people found it great um, fun to have me come because I was the only one that read their research. And so they would spend a lot of time helping me look at how do we use that kind of research to impact the way the uh, brain was functioning. So put together a number of programs for him. And then by the time he was 15, he finally was beginning to read and uh, do mathematics. In the meantime, I was being recruited to go to um, southern part of the United States to head up a um, hospital system across the southeast and realize that our child was not movable. He was 12 at the time and had made his first friend at school, and you can't you can't take that away at that point when after 12 years, that's his first friend, right? So I decided at that point that I needed to do something that would be um, where I had total control over my time and what it was that I was doing. And so I started a manufacturing company um, and um, have now 45, 50 patents and trademarks that um, I have taken a globally. And so we have sold those products all over the world. But in the meantime, as I was doing that, I had the opportunity to also work with multinational companies, particularly looking at companies that wanted to establish business partnerships in Japan. I grew up in Japan, so knew the culture and the language well. And so worked with um, building especially biotech relationships between uh, U.S. companies and Japanese companies. And so as I have done that always, what I've seemed to naturally fall into is how do you really take something, connect the dots, and make it really work? And so when I think of, and I think that was what I did with my son. And so just to complete that story, at this time, he is now CFO of a Fortune 100 company. He has a CPA and his MBA. So, you know, what I learned is perseverance is important. Two, systems are hugely important. 
Three, look at how do you connect dots? Mm -hmm. Because we tend to take a look at finite pieces of information and hope that they work. We do that in our organizations, our companies. And so we take what's right in front of us and we move, hoping and thinking that that's going to produce a result. So you take a look at our organizations, for example, and Gallup research tells us that out of every 10 people who show up for work, only three people are going to carry the weight of 10. So seven are not performing. Mm -hmm. Three people are doing the work of 10. That's amazing, right? We also know that right now, research tells us that 85% of people tell us that they're overwhelmed and stressed at work. Mm -hmm. 21% of companies tell us that that level of stress and overwhelm has hit critical levels. So they're desperately looking for ways to deal with that. So what do you do? You've got to connect dots. You've got to take a look at how do you um, pull what works? So let me go back to my son. What I learned from him was the one thing you can never give up or take away from a human being is the sense of hope. It's the same thing in terms of what goes on in our organization. You take out the sense of the future, the hope, what's happening with my career, how am I building it, how am I building the people below me. You take that away and your system begins to deteriorate. So the most frequently asked question by my son was, is there hope? Do you, have you run out of ideas for me? Right? Because the ideas equated for him to be hope. So when I was running hospitals, I worked with women's and children's hospitals and uh, cancer patients. And one of the things that we discovered with our terminally ill patients, they were in the end stage of life, that if we were going to create a possibility of survival, we'd already done all the surgery, all the treatments, everything that could be done had been done. So you couldn't change that, right? Those were already finished. Nothing more was available. And so what do you, what can you change? Well, what you change is the sense of a future, of hope. Where is their hope? And you begin to connect some of those pieces for people. Same thing is true in our organizations. So by doing that, the number of people who were terminally ill began to, that morbidity rate began to decrease, or mortality rate began to decrease. So what, you, what I learned was the incredible importance of creating that sense of the future, the hope. You, you've got to create a vision of it that people get it at a gut level. If you don't get it at a gut level, you don't own it, and you have to own it. It can't be up here. It's got to be down in the gut, right? Yes. And then I think there's some research that has been powerful for me. Um, one of it has been research that's been done by Marshall Goldsmith, who um, I'm one of his uh, coaches and the people that um, um, is a part of his system and his network. And one of the things he talks about is when we're in organizations and we've moved up in the organization, we tend to suffer from being too smart. Hmm right? We have all the answers. 
right? And when we have all the answers, we can't hear, we can't see what's in front of us. We can't hear the people around us, below us. And so um, people stop coming to us with really important information because we're just too smart. We know the answers. And, but to make an organization work well, you've got to create an ecosystem. So the people who move forward and then go on to build legacies are the people who can really hear and see. They may be smart. They may be the smartest, yeah. but they're humble enough to say, I'm going to learn from you, yeah. right? Because even the person at the lowest level is going to teach you something. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So those are some of the most important things I think I've learned. I think the other thing, can I just share in terms of what some of the challenges women have? Absolutely, yeah. I had the um, opportunity to uh, spend a little bit of time with Sally Helgeson and to interview her. She wrote the book, How Women Rise. And she talks about what are the roadblocks that women put in their career path. And actually, a lot of it is the same as what men put in their path. It's just that women exaggerate it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. One of the things that we tend to do in corporate life is we'll go to meetings. Let's say, especially I'm going to take, tell the story from a woman's perspective because we, we do this more. Okay. So we'll go to a meeting and we'll make a contribution to the meeting and maybe it gets ignored. Nobody's really listening or um, appreciating the comment and it goes on. And then another person speaks to another person. And maybe what you said kind of gets reset by another man. And after the meeting, woman thinks, why doesn't anybody listen to me? And they're sorting, 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 hashing it out over and over again. What went wrong? What, why didn't this work? What could I have done better, right? And sometimes months later, they're still processing. Mm-hmm. So we tend to ruminate. And what happens when we ruminate is we get stuck there and we can't get further ahead. A man, on the other hand, will also ruminate. But he'll go, oh, well, okay, I'm going to move on, right? They can let it go much more quickly than many of us as women can. So why do you think that is the case? Why do you think that women tend to have a longer-term rumination and, and, and they're just um, like take longer to get past that and kind of say, oh, well, the way a man does it? Why do you think that is true for women? Sally Helgeson would say that a good reason for that happening is um, we have the need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Women are supposed to be perfect. Uh, We're to take care of all the problems. We're to keep all the feathers smooth, right? We're responsible for the feeling tone of everything around us. And so we take ownership of it all the time. And we bring that to everything that we do. And so we many times have trouble getting out of that role and we don't need to be perfect, but giving up being perfect is hard. Yes, absolutely. I have a friend who asks me all the time. I have so many degrees and so many certifications and he'll say to me, Lois, when do you have enough? Right? Yeah. Because from his perspective, he doesn't need any of that. He's so confident, right? And his perspective is, I gather these certifications and degrees 
to gain confidence. Maybe that's true, but part of it is also a yearning for knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, there are those differences in, per- in perceptions. Right. We have a sense that when we're good enough, people will notice us. That's a w- woman's perspective. Mm-hmm. When men tend to assume that they're already good enough, they're there. Isn't that good enough? Yep. <laughs> Right. Yes, that really puts things into perspective, doesn't it? I, Lois, I want to go back to something you said earlier when you talked about hope, right? You talked about hope and how that's so important, our perspectives on hope and having a vision for the future. So I want you to address, like talk to my listeners. I mean, my listeners are wanting more in their careers. You know, they want to, they want more success. They want more happiness, more fulfillment. And some of them have been working in that career path or in that particular organization for a number of years. So what can you say to to professionals like the, like them, like my listeners who want, who are trying to get a vision of what their career path looks like. And sometimes it's just like, kind of eludes you. Like, I, I don't know what, I don't know what I want. I don't know. I can't really quite see it because I can't see so far ahead. Right. But I know that what I have right now is I'm not quite there yet. You know, right. how, what would you say to them? So I think part of it is talking with people who have arrived at places you want to get to. So let me give you the, a, a great example. And this is, again, an example of how men and women do things differently. So I had um, two, two friends, one who had an account, both had children who were in um, one of the big four accounting firms. Mm-hmm. And um, one was a man, one was a daughter, okay, or, so a son and a daughter, two different friends. So one of the things that happens evidently in in these accounting firms the first year when you work is the partners or directors will say to the first year people, will you go get us coffee? Run down to Starbucks and get us coffee. So they'll come back with trays of coffee for people. My My friend with the daughter, she barked at it. It's like, what do they think they're doing asking me to go get coffee for them? I don't have time for them and they're mistreating me. I'm not, they're not treating me with respect as a woman, right? Yeah. The son, on the other hand, said, wow, I can't wait to go get you coffee. He'd come back with the coffee and he'd stop at every partner's desk. He'd say, project are you working on? Wow, could I help you with that? He was already working on his next job. Yeah. Right? He heard what everybody was doing And what was interesting, so he began to put little little, um, pockets of information in there about, wow, I could do this for you. How can I help you, right? Mm -hmm. So he had already begun to line up the next role while he was getting coffee, right? So how do we build hope? How do we build that sense of future? It's by... Looking at what's in front of us and looking at it as an opportunity, not as a disadvantage. If we look at things that are there and treat ourselves as a victim, we will be a victim. If, on the other hand, we take that same experience and we say, wow, I now have access because of that request Mm -hmm. to somebody that I normally would not have access to, that's an opportunity. That's a future, right? So it's our, what's in, what we allow our mind to process. 
obviously you have to set limits so you don't become a victim, right? Mm -hmm. So that's part of the future. Um, Without hope and a sense of future, our human spirit begins to die. So just to give you another example, probably the motivating force behind me in terms of looking at hope and creating that for my son and for other places that I work. I first learned that from my mother, who was a survivor of a prison camp during the Second World War. And she would tell us as children that at nighttime in the prison camp, they knew who would be dead in the morning. And you go, how can you be, how can you know who's going to be dead in the morning? And she'd say, it's by how they say goodnight. Mm. And I'd say, but how can you know from how they say goodnight, right? When the goodnight became hollow and empty, their life was over. Huh. See, as a human being, we need to have a sense of a future. If we don't have a sense of future, we begin to disappear. We destroy ourselves. We go into depression, anxiety, all of the things that we know are not healthy behaviors. We may not physically die as happened in the prison camp, but we go into patterns that are going to be harmful to either our psyche or our body. So how do you build it? Going back to your first question. um, I think it's by talking with people who you see are successful. You look at somebody, you go, wow, I really respect that person. How did they do that? Would they share their story with me? Just asking them. I think people are more willing to share than we think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Yes. Uh, most of the time, people simply don't ask. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying. And I, you know, I, I actually term it, I have a term for that. I call it benchmarking, where I encourage people to just look at someone who has kind of like the success that you want and using emotions like envy as a guiding tool of what your deep yearnings are. And just kind of talk to those people and again, asking them to share stories. But you're right. A lot of people don't ask, do they? Or some people don't even know that you can ask that right. question. <laughs> so here, Here's an exercise that I think along with benchmarking works really well. I've used it with a number of people, and that is to have people list three heroes. Who are three heroes? Mm -hmm. Two need to be alive, and whether one is dead or alive, it doesn't matter. But then take a look at what is it about those heroes that you absolutely love? What are their personality traits? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it something about how they carry themselves, how they look, how they, whatever? What is it that they did? Is it what they did that um, drew you to that person? Um, Was it their networks? Or was it because of a relationship that drew you to that person? But be very specific and make that list, right? Then take a look at yourself. What are your characteristics? And if of those three, Choose one. If I'm going to have those characteristics, how do I get from here to there? Right? What are the steps? Yes. Absolutely. As you begin to look at that, you go, wow, that's not so hard. Right? That's absolutely true. And, you know, most people find it difficult to look 
one year ahead in their career, never mind five years ahead, you know, and there's a lot of career advice out there that says plan for you, you know, your five-year plan and then your 10-year plan. And they have a really difficulty planning and seeing so far ahead. But, the, but at the end of the day, like we all want to leave behind a legacy. You know, we all want to know that what we're doing matters, right? And I know that you're, you have a lot of expertise in, you know, de- developing leaders. You know, and I, and I talk about this in my, to, to my audience a lot. I talk about career leadership. So if you don't mind, Lois, share with us on, on your, about your perspectives on building a legacy. What does sure. that mean to you? And what does so, that mean to us? Yeah. So part of that comes from, we've gotten a lot of insight into that from looking at lives. Um, and you say, okay, who is it that we remember? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it was Charles Garfield many, many years ago out of Stanford who talked about this. And he said, if you take a look at the great Kings of Egypt, how many can you list? Mm-hmm. Right. We have lots of pyramids but we don't know their names. That's right. Yeah. Right. But we do know people like Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi. So what is it that made the kings not be remembered, but Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, we remember? Well, part of it is they were beyond themselves. They gave of themselves to other people, right? And they were selfless. They were servant. They were really servant leaders. They developed and changed lives of the people around them. And so we have a deep, enduring bond that we begin to create with those kinds of people. So when you begin to take a look at legacy, I think that's one of the things that people take a look at. What do I want to leave behind that people will want to remember? Maybe it's only your family. But think of how many families don't want to remember anything about each other, you know, they, they are embittered or they're separated or um, those relationships aren't there. So for whom do you want to leave a legacy? That's the first question. And then secondly, what is it that you want to leave? So here's one of the challenges that a CEO, for example, has of a major fortune five, 100, whatever company is you leave this major organization but you're still young. And what do you do next? Yeah. You're already at the top of the mountain. And there really isn't much else to do that you haven't done. So what do you do next? You can play golf. You can go on cruises. You can do traveling. But there's a point where you wake up and you go, this is really pretty boring or they begin to have health issues, or they begin to become depressed, right? Because part of what drives us is having a sense of purpose and meaning. And so what they then are are moved to do is to look at, how do I build a legacy? How do I give and leave something behind? That's the next step. People who ask that question remain healthy and vibrant. And um, and they tend to get remembered for much more. So Marsha Goldsmith talks about the former CEO of the World Bank. And he has left the World Bank, but he continues to work in developing countries 
saving lives through programs that he has created and um, impacting and changing lives. His impact will be known for years and years and years to come. How do you build a legacy? It really starts with who do you want to be remembered for? Yeah. Right? And, and of the people that you know, who do you want of those people to remember you? Is it a small network? Is it a big network? Um, because how we go about that then changes in terms of how we do that. But the most important is that we begin to really lead and look at how do we change lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to something else. And I think this works with legacy as well. But it's something when we're talking about, there is talking a little bit about the World Bank. Uh, this example came to me, and it's something that Sally Helgeson talks about and writes about in her book. And one of the things that she talks about was doing a conference in London with a group of NGOs. And um, one of the uh, people from the World Bank was there and the question was raised, how do we really get our message out there? Same question your people are asking, right? right. So people notice us and recognize what it is that we have to offer. And the gentleman's response was, let me give you an example. He said, I was on an elevator in London you know, one of those elevators that goes and goes and goes 20, 30 floors. And um, a gentleman in his mid-30s about got on the elevator. Mm -hmm. He was from the Middle East and um, dressed very, very well. And the elevator is proceeding upwards. And this, there was another gentleman on the elevator. And this gentleman turns to him and says, what do you do? And the, this 35-year-old professional man said, I am, let me just say, uh, Mohammed, for lacking another name at the moment. I am Mohammed. I work as an IT professional putting uh, programs in place that solves um, hunger issues in the world. Mm -hmm. My goal is to go to Africa in Kenya and to develop a program to do the same thing. And I'm passionate about that and know I can do it because I also speak their language. Wow. And end of conversation, he takes out his business card and hands it to the gentleman. The elevator proceeds up, and this other very distinguished gentleman gets off the elevator, and as the door opens, he turns to this 35-year-old gentleman, and he says, I think I have somebody I would like you to speak to. They will call you this afternoon. So he didn't oversell, right? But he was clear on who he wanted to become. And he had boiled it down to three sentences. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I want to do. And I can do it because. That's all. Yeah. And I love it. Notice the order in which you said it. That order is important. This is who I am and this is what I do, right? right. So first you have to become the person you need to be in order to do the, what you need to do. And then you can have the things you want in your career. Like, I love that. And I'm, I, I love that. The order is very important too. It's in the becoming. And, and I, mean, I think it was Oprah who said that some of the most successful entrepreneurs out there, you know, they spend 80% of the time working on the who. 
right? On who they are. And, and the next is on what they do, right? right. So I, I, I love it. I love what you said. So thank you for sharing that. And another thing, Lois, if you don't mind sharing, I, I, I mean, you are, you are an expert. You have an expert on leadership. You're coaching leaders as well. You're developing leaders as well. So tell my listeners, you know, tell us what is for you the definition of leadership, but what does that mean to you? I think leaders are people who are humble enough to learn, disciplined to implement an action plan and to evaluate their own effectiveness and understand people so they can change the lives of the people around them. That's leadership. It's very simple. Right. Are leaders born or are they made? You know, that's been an argument, hasn't it, for years? It has been. Yeah. yeah. And if it were born, you would not have leaders emerging in military. For example, military, we train people to be leaders. Mm-hmm. And they're incredible leaders, right? Yeah. They can get a group of people through fire and um, all sorts of difficult situations. So I think what those experiences have taught us is that leadership is learned, but you have to be willing to learn. You also have to be willing to admit when you make mistakes. So a good leader in the military, for example, um, is willing to say, you know what, that didn't work. We we almost lost it, right? Next time we're going to do this better, yeah. right? It's very hard for us sometimes to do that, but that, that vulnerability and willingness to look at how do I get better? Good leaders always want to get better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how would you advise someone who might tell you, you know, I don't have any leadership experience I've never led anything before, but I desire to be a leader. I, I want that. You know, so what is, the, what is the process or that you would take someone through to begin that journey of becoming a leader? Well, I think listening to like your show, your program is very valuable because you're learning skills just by listening, right? Mm-hmm. I think the other is um, it's good to get a coach because think of it, if you were going to be a tennis player, if you decide you want to be a pro tennis player, you would go get a coach. It's the first thing you would do. You would never dream about being a a professional tennis player without a coach. Mm -hmm. And yet we expect all the time to have leaders develop without giving them that, that backing that you really need to grow and develop. When you're in the fire, it's very hard to see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's what the value of a coach is. They open your perspective and your eyes. So, you know, you can see what it is that's going on. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Louis, one thing that I, well, actually, I admire many things about your work, but one of the things that I admire is how you work in organizations, right? You're there, you're, you're coaching. People bring you on to help to improve processes, to make better teams, right? And to also build high-performing teams. So I'm curious, 
have you noticed any themes when you're going to organizations, visiting organizations and all around the world too? Have you noticed any themes that I guess sort of like what common mistakes people make or common uh, roadblocks that teams are coming across that they aren't just, they aren't moving forward or becoming the high performing teams that they want to be. I think right now, one of the big challenges we have is as we have, um, we work so hard not to silo, right? So we have cross-functional teams. And what that means is many times you really don't know people well. You may have many managers um, that you're reporting to for different kinds. Of, you may have one that's key, but you have others that you are also reporting to. So how we relate has begun to change. What that also means is I think we need to look at some very different ways of creating systems. So almost all of our models on team building, for example, are dependent upon trust. We begin by building trust. When you have cross-functional and you're there for only short periods of time, it's not um, logical that they're going to take time to build a trusting relationship. They simply want to get the job done. They want to get home. They've got families to take care of. Let's get the work done, right? Yeah, right. And um, so one of the things that I'm becoming very sensitive to is creating systems that are not dependent upon trust, but dependent upon accountability, follow-up, and measurement. Are we really doing what we said we're going to do? Are we producing, are we moving the needle in terms of our performance as a team? And if not, let's take a look. And generally, it's in that follow-up process where we, accountability and follow-up process where we've got the problems, but neither one of those require trust. So it's, it's a model that I use in organizations right now because it really allows us to uh, go in and use that. And then, of course, it's wonderful if you can develop the trust and the other things that make an organization work well. But we need new systems that allow us to function effectively that are not dependent upon trust. I see. Okay. So what's one piece of advice you would give someone, like a professional working in a company who has a deep-rooted, a deep-seated desire to grow with that company? and to accelerate their career, what's one piece of advice you would give to someone like with that desire who wants to become a top performer? Yeah. So I would say go to the person above you and say, what is one thing I can do to do this better? And it may be the goal that your boss is wanting or your manager is wanting you to work on, um, or as a team that you're working on, but it's one thing I can do to be better, right? Do that with maybe three, four, five colleagues that are part of your group. What's one thing I can do to do this job better? And then when they tell you, just simply say thank you. Don't argue. You know, we tend to say, no, 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 you you don't understand. I do it this way because, right? That's If you want advice, just say thank you. If you're going to argue, they won't give advice. Right. Right? Because you're saying that you don't value their, their, their advice, right? Then the next thing, once they've given that advice, I would suggest that you then sit down and develop an action plan. 
to do that one thing that my manager said I should work on, here's my action plan. Take that action plan back to your manager. You know what? Thank you so much for your advice. I am working on that, and this is my action plan that I've developed to deal with that. What do you think? Do you think that will address it? Mm-hmm. And the manager will say, yeah, no, add this, do this. Instead, take that, add that into your action plan. The end of the month, go back to the manager. I've been working on this this month. This is what I've done in my action plan. These are the results I've seen. What do you think? And you do that with your colleagues as well. What that does is it says to everybody, this person's got their act together. They're really shaking and moving. They care, right? Think of it. If only three out of 10 people care, the organization is looking for those three people who are going to show up caring. Those are the people that are going to move ahead. You've just said to the whole system, I care very deeply. And look at, this is what I'm doing. And when you say, how did I do? Now what the manager and your colleagues have to admit is, yes, there was improvement. Mm. Or no, there was an improvement. And they'll give you suggestions as to what else you should do. Now they own what it is that you're doing. They now want your success because your success is their success because it was their input, right? So it's such a simple, easy way to move ahead, but we don't do it very often, yeah. right? Yeah. Part of it's fear, but part of it's we just don't give ourselves permission to do it. I totally agree. It's like, I love it. That technique is like um, what I described as turning them into your informal mentors because yes. they have invested, they have invested interest in your success. Yes. <laughs> so what are you excited about now, Lois? What are you excited about for the future of work, the future of organizations? What are you excited about now? I think what excites me the most right now is looking at um, how do we develop ecosystems within our organizations? So all the ways in which we connect dots or don't connect them. Um, so dots between um, departments. So um, if you have a large multinational organization, for example, and you're operating globally in different countries, one of the challenges that we have is how do we move that whole organization in the same direction with the same value, um, with the same enthusiasm and passion for the result that we're trying to create, right? And part of that difficulty comes from language and culture, because we perceive things differently, correct? And part of it is that um, we haven't created a system that actually connects all those dots. So how things are being perceived in Hong Kong or Japan versus how they're being perceived in New York, there's a difference in how do we... So you could take that same model that I just shared What's one thing that we could do that would make this work better? People are eager to share that. They're dying to have things work better, but we don't look at the ecosystem and how to connect the ecosystem. And I really think that will be the future of where success is going to lie because what if we don't do that, what we'll continue to do is we'll do all of our training and 
uh, management within organization by fads. So some years the fad is we're going to do culture. We'll do organization-wide culture, whatever that means. It varies by organization. Now it's all diversity and inclusion, and that's important. Then down the road, there'll be another fad, right? But it doesn't mean that culture wasn't important or diversity and inclusion wasn't important. It's just we didn't make it connect all the dots. So it became part of the ecosystem. And if we're going to solve what our issues are within our companies, we're going to have to have an ecosystem perspective. And when we do, I think we'll start to see those needles moving much more. Right. That's- so that's what I'm passionate about right now, because I think it's I think there's there's ways we can do it and it's not that hard to do. Right. So how do you work with these teams? How do you work with organizations? It varies. It varies by organization because it really depends on the leaders at the top. Right. Um, it also depends on how the organization is structured. Yeah. Um, so you do it. You really have to do it systematically, group by group by group. Yeah. But the, the overall arching concept of what has to be in place, that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. But, they, but how you approach it will vary. Mm-hmm. So what's your prediction of the future for organizations? Because, you know, this whole work economy is changing, how careers are changing. What's your prediction of some, uh, some change, changes that are coming our way? And is it a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Or is it just change as a neutral thing? Well, I tend to be a positive person. So I would say yeah, I'm positive right now. I am excited about it. And this is why I'm excited. Okay. Right now, the research is not good in terms of the workplace environment, right? Yeah. Um, and that research comes out of stable corporations. So if you take an organization that's gone through a merger or an acquisition, for example, those numbers are going to be not as positive. Mm-hmm. But here's the good news. Our um, labor pool is shrinking, and um, our unemployment level has dropped. So the number of people that we have to draw from to as employees is decreasing. That means we have to look at how we're going to solve this problem. Otherwise, we're going to have trouble. The people are going to go to our competition, yeah. right? So we're going to be forced to address these issues. And I think the people who are going to do well in the future are the ones who are going to say, I got it. I'm going to help develop this because it's the way we're going to survive and grow. Yeah. Amazing. That mindset and that attitude is going to be the key, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Attitude is so much, isn't it? It is so much, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Lois, as I said before, I really admire your work. What you're doing is so important in the future, in the present. It'll always be so important. So how can my listeners reach you? If they wanted to reach you, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Sure. They're always welcome to come to my website, but I'll give you my email. It's lois at build tomorrow, the number two morrow. So just B-U-I-L-D number two, M-O-R-R-O-W.com. Um, and you can reach me at any time. You can certainly go through Grace. She would be willing to make the connection. Mm-hmm. And um, 
yeah, if we can help in any way, I'd be very glad to do that because I am passionate about this. And I think um, we spend much of our lives at work. So let's make it really interesting and rewarding. That's amazing. So with that said, Lois, thank you so much for being a guest on Career Revisionist and on my show. And I appreciate all your helpful insights. My listeners, I will also be putting dropping some links below. So look below at the show notes for links where you can reach Lois and connect with her on her various social media and especially on LinkedIn, right? That's very important. Correct. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. And Kurovicious, I look forward. Thank you for another uh, listening to another episode. I look forward to hanging out and chatting with you on the next episode of Career Revision. Bye.